Thank you for joining the Capital Church Podcast. We believe that Jesus is for you and that through these expressions of our community, you will find hope, healing, and belonging. To learn more, join us live every week online and visit our website at capitalchurch.co or send us an email at info at You may be seated. Dad, I didn't know they had videos back then. <laughs> nah. I love it. How many love Johnny Cash? How many like more Johnny Cash in church? Johnny Cash in church. I love that. Well, I'm so glad you made it here today. Turn to your ear and say, man, I'm just delighted. So today, um, I'm going to take this passage, this Mark and passage, and I'm going to do my best to talk about what Jesus is doing with blessing the children. This is, especially in a, in, in a Mediterranean world, what Jesus is doing, and I'm kind of giving a hint, is profoundly countercultural. So I'm going to do my best to kind of talk a little bit about uh, what Jesus is doing as he blesses the children. And then I'm going to tie, and this is kind of a map for you so you know where we're going here today. And then I'm going to tie this Mark in passage or this passage in Mark to uh, a biblical perspective or a kingdom of God perspective on abortion in light of Roe v. Wade being overturned. So let me just say this from the outset. I want to make this very clear. Um, I'm not going to discuss the constitutionality of the court's decision which I, like the nuances of it, which I agree with, all right? So let's not give into the narcissism of small differences. Like if I, wow, he didn't go through all the points of the constitution and now he's my enemy. I am not your enemy, I'm your pastor, okay? Um, So let's not give into the narcissism of small differences. We're on the same team, okay? We're gonna call it Team Jesus, okay? However, and I agree with that deci- the court's decision, but what I find at the very end, I think it's important that everybody reads this decision. Uh, Alito, he, he calls abortion a profound moral problem. And I'm going to do my best to tease that out in light of what we find in the biblical story. So that's one. I'm going to talk about Jesus blessing the children. I'm going to tie that to a biblical perspective, kingdom of God perspective on abortion. Number two, I'm going to offer a prophetic challenge to our church today. So you get your seatbelt on, right? Get your helmets because I'm coming after you. What am I talking about? I don't know. Uh, but he, I, I, at the end of my message, I'm going to offer a prophetic challenge to all of us um, for our church and uh, the church writ large in, in our nation. Uh, finally, and this is just number three, I, most of you are going to agree with me on this position. Most of you will. Some of you will not. As my professor has told me many times, good and godly people can disagree civilly. Do you believe that? If you 100% disagree with my position, I still love you and I hope you still love me and I hope you stick it around and we can talk through things. Totally fine with that, right? I, I want to make it a very clear today. I'm not trying to w- win an argument. I'm not, trying to, I'm not playing to the rancor of our culture wars. I'm not gloating here today. I'm not trying to pick a fight at all, okay? Um, so if you have any problems with my message, you can text me and my phone number is 208-000-0000, okay? <laughs> So you can certainly text that to my phone number and I will respond to you in 10 years. Okay. Are you ready? So I want to begin with this Mediterranean world, the ancient Near East. We'll call it the ancient Near East. 
There is um, an ancient papyrus letter discovered around the turn of the century in the west bank of the Nile, about 120 miles south of Cairo, in the excavated rubbish dumps of this ancient city. There's this worker, Hilarion. Everyone will say Hilarion. Writes to his wife, um, we'll call her Alice, um, addressed in Egyptian fashion as his sister on 18, June 18th in the year 1 BCE. And what he writes is a picture of the Mediterranean world and the dominant perception. Everyone say dominant. The dominant perception of children and their status. So please pay careful attention to this. He writes, Hilarion to his sister Alice, many greetings. Likewise to my lady Barois, this is his mother-in-law. And to Apollinarian, this is his first male child. Know that we are even yet in Alexandria. Do not worry if they all come back except me and I remain in Alexandria. Alexandria, I urge and entreat you be concerned about the child Apollinarian. And if I should receive my wages soon, I will send them back to you. If I chance you bear a son, if it is a boy, let it, let it be. If it is a girl, cast it out to die. You have said to Aphrodisius, do not forget me. How can I forget you? Therefore, I urge you not to worry. Here we have a father and a husband, a husband who is loving to his wife, but severe, horrifyingly severe to his potential um, daughter. This was a normal, normal practice in the ancient Near East. The horrifying meaning, in other words, as we can deduce from this letter, among other letters, and as many historians have sketched out for us, the horrifying meaning of a child was a nothing. A child was a nobody, a non-person in the Mediterranean world of paternal power. We find Tom Holland, he writes, uh, he's a former Anglican, now kind of a quasi um, agnostic, but he's coming back to Jesus. Can I get an amen? He writes this in his book, Dominion. I recommend this book to everyone. He says this, lepers and slaves were not the most defenseless of God's children. Across the Roman world, wailing at the sides of the roads or on the rubbish tips, babies abandoned by their parents were a common sight. Others might be dropped down drains there to perish in the hundreds. The odd eccentric philosopher aside, few had ever queried this practice or contradicted it. This is what he means. Indeed, there were cities who by ancient law had made a positive virtue of infanticide and abortion, condemning to death deformed infants for the good of the state. Sparta, one of the most celebrated cities in Greece, had been the epitome of this policy, and Aristotle himself had lent it the full weight of his prestige. Girls in particular were liable to be winnowed ruthlessly. Those who were rescued from the wayside would invariably, invariably be raised as slaves. Brothels were full of women whose infants had been abandoned by their parents, so much so that it had a long-provided novelist with a staple of their fiction. Only a few peoples, the odd German tribe and inevitably the Jews, had stood aloof from the exposure of unwanted children. Pretty much everyone else had always taken it for granted. We kill our young. Until that was the emergence of a Christian people. So what is Jesus doing in this passage? I like to just say from the outset that the disciples were the worst kids pastors ever. <laughs> but we kind of get, I'll just kind of, like, I've always wondered, okay, what's their motive here, right? Why, why are they refusing children to be in the presence of Jesus? Well, I think we're seeing, and this is what I love about the New Testament, we see their unfiltered opinion and it clearly shows that they devalue children or they see children as having lower status. 
I think Peter's saying we're a messianic movement. This is a kingdom of power. We're going to take over Rome. Jesus, no. You don't want to be associated with children who are considered in the ancient world as non-persons. So we have, in the words of one scholar, we have these framing words. Mark takes these these words and he's framing this entire story to give us the meaning of what Jesus is doing. The very end of this passage, Jesus rebukes the worst kids pastors in the world. Thankfully, we have the best. Church, can I get an amen? The best youth pastors, kids pastors in the world. He rebukes his disciples. He then embraces uh, the little children and infants. I even think he embraced um, pregnant women. In Luke chapter 18, the word is infants. Infants were brought to him. That word in the Greek, and there's a wide semantic range to it, can refer to infant babies and also the unborn. So I don't think, and this is just speculation, I don't think it's out of the realm of possibility that infants were coming to Jesus as well as pregnant women wanting the blessing of Jesus. Think about women in this ancient Near East context. They had no power. They had no status. They're coming to Jesus. And who is Jesus blessing? Jesus is blessing all the nobodies. So you can blankety blank me today. That's fine. And we will love you. But in blankety blanking me, I just want to say it. I don't get my thoughts from myself. I get this from Jesus. And this is exactly in the words of one scholar, what Jesus is doing as he touched there are four terms, took the babies, the infants in his arms, blessed, and then laid hands on them. What is that? Right? Those in this ancient Near East uh, world, those are official bodily actions of a father. Everyone would say father. Of a father designating life and blessing rather than death over a newly born infant. It is the welcome rather than the casting out of the child in the garbage heap. In other words, Jesus is saying, my kingdom is a kingdom for the powerless, the vulnerable, the non-persons, and the nobodies. In other words, for children, Jesus, Jesus is designating them as persons. In the words of Timothy um, George, he writes, the sanctity of life for every person, including the preborn, the weak, the most vulnerable, the elderly, every single one of them is made in the image of God and is irreducible irreducibly precious in the sight of God, inherently worthy of respect and protection. So this is going to be a big hot topic issue now that we live in a post Roe v. Wade world. The argument is going to be over personhood. It has been for some time, but now it's going to get really hot. People get hot and bothered over this. Okay. Did I say that right? All right, let's move on. I don't know if that's, I have a pure mind. You guys don't. So anyways, what, what does personhood mean? Because let me say this, every scientist worth their salt will so tell you that life begins at conception. Every scientist. Now, there are some scientists that will philosophize and say that there's a difference between human life and personhood. 
right? But every scientist will tell you that human life begins at conception. So, and I'm not going to get into the philosophical weeds today. Again, I'm not trying to win an argument. I want to be sensitive to where many of you are at. If you're blankety blank me, just hold on, okay? We're going to get to the good stuff. I just ask that everybody sit in your seats for the next 25 minutes. By the way, uh, I've instructed our ushers to lock the door, so you can't go anywhere. Okay? I'm kidding. Some of you are like, oh my God. Um, it's a joke, guys. It's a joke. So the question that we have to ask is, where does life begin? And it's not going to be long. I'm just going to give you some passages of Scripture. It's not philosophy. Passages of Scripture. The biblical story affirms, I'm going to just tell it right out of the gate, that personhood begins at conception. Amen. Personhood begins at conception. Jeremiah chapter 1, verse 5 says this, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. And before you were born, I consecrated you. I have purpose for you. I appointed you a prophet to the nations. This is who you are. God is speaking over Jeremiah before and in, in the womb of his mother that there was a purpose for him. Psalm 139, 13 through 16 says this, for you form my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you for I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. Some of you are more fearfully than wonderfully. Let's move on. Wonderful are your works. I say it all the time when I read this. My soul knows it very well. Verse 15, my frame was not hidden from you when I was made, being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. I love this, verse 16. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. This isn't just poetry. This isn't just flowery rhetoric. In your book, this is God seeing our unformed substance and saying, you are a person. In your book were written, every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. Luke chapter 1, verse 15. This is all about this angel that comes to Zechariah and tells him he's going to have a boy and they're going to call him John. This is John the Baptist. And this is what the angel says. For he will be great of John the Baptist before the Lord. And he must not drink wine or strong drink. And he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb. And then we move on. As you see this kind of unfolding drama happen in the prologue of Luke, we find in chapter 1, 41 through 43, we have Mary and Elizabeth. They, they find each other and they spend time together. And verse 41 tells us, and when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leaped in her womb, implying life. And Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. And she acclaimed, exclaimed with a loud cry, blessed are you among women and blessed is the fruit of your womb. Verse 43. And why is this granted to me? Check out the language that the mother of my Lord should come to me. The mother of my Lord. She's already calling this preborn person her Lord. We see throughout the narrative arc of the Old Testament, God talks about and blesses the seed. The Old Testament does not make any distinctions about uh, born infant and fetus. In fact, the Old Testament uses the same word to refer to both, implying that there is no difference. God blesses the seed. In fact, as I just read this recently, 90% of women considering an abortion who we love and welcome. We love and we will, we will not get into the culture war of rancor and violence and silly little rhetoric. 
If you are a partisan politician, let me say this really quick. I'm going to back up. I think we need to be involved in politics. I don't think we need to be political. But if you're involved in partisanship and you're using vitriol to demonize the other side, I don't care who you are. You are not a serious person. You are not a serious person. You are not a serious person. You are an immature person. And I'm not talking about the world right now. I'm talking about the people in the church. You are not a mature, serious person. Some of you don't like me right now, but that's okay. We are called to infect this world with love and blessing, not hate and rancor. But 90% of women considering, this is staggering, an abortion, who sees an, an ultrasound, chooses to keep their baby. Because you see that there's life in the womb. Against the materialists, I love this, Nancy Percy writes this, a Christian concept of personhood depends not on what I can do, but on who I am. In other words, she's rejecting the utilitarian argument that somehow I, I have to have the right skin color, I have to have the right personality, I have to be born on the right side of the tracks, whatever that means, I have to have money, I have to have this for me to be accepted in the kingdom of God. No, she rejects the utilitarian argument and she argues from the moral argument from the biblical perspective, it's not what you do that makes you something, it's who you are. That you and I are created in the image of God and that God has called you and I into existence and continues in spite of our flaws, in spite of the ways we have spoiled the divine image in us, in spite of the ways that we've gone against the good purposes of God, God knows us, he loves us, he still has a purpose for us, he sees straight through us, he invites us back into right relationship with us and his intent is to still work through us, no matter what. Human beings, as she continues, do not need to earn the right to be treated as creatures of great value. Our dignity is intrinsic, rooted in the fact that God made us, loved us, and knows us. This is so good. She goes on to say the pro-life position is the most inclusive position in the world. It basically states, and again, I'm not trying to pick a fight. Guys, this is not a political rally. Okay, please hear me. I'm being your pastor, okay? And I just think this is important. She states unequivocally, if you are, and this is what our stance is as a church, as we follow God's word, if you are a member of the human race, you're in. Celebrate. You're in. No? Okay. Let me go to this side. Guys, over here. You have dignity and status of a full member of the moral community. Let me come over here. You don't have to have a certain skin color. You don't have to have some certain family of origin. You don't have to have your whole life together. No. You are in by the grace of God. And I want to restate this more fully. 
That if you look at all the biblical data, I, 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 I disagree with theologians who say that you need to interpret other, other passages of Scripture by other passages of Scripture. I think that's flawed. I won't get into it. I think the better way of interpreting Scripture is taking a look at all the biblical data. Look at all the whole counsel of God. And what you find is that the God of the Bible is on the side of the powerless and the vulnerable. In the words of Martin Luther King Jr., what I love is the arc of the moral universe is long and is bent towards justice. Martin Luther King Jr. did not get that from the pagans. He did not get that from the atheists. He did not get that from Buddha. He did not get that from Muhammad. I say that with all respect. Come on, somebody. He did not get that from liberal-style democracy, laissez-faire economics. He got that from the Bible itself. The long arc of our moral universe is bent towards Justice. In fact, one columnist wrote this. Jesus was himself at one point an unborn child. If there's any questions before his arrival about the sanctity of human life, these questions were answered 2,000 years ago. You might disagree with what I'm saying, but that's okay. I think you still love me and I still love you, but let me just say this with the early church fathers. The early church fathers were uniformed in their condemnation of abortion and, and infanticide. We can get into Justin Martyr and Origen and a lot of other church fathers who, who roundly or resoundly condemn abortion. We had the Didache, one of the earliest outside of the New Testament, early um, first century into second century church document, and it roundly condemns infanticide and abortion. And the reason, in the words of one church father, is for the fetus in the womb is a created being and is loved by God. You still with me? Okay, so, Chris, what do we do about women? Right? So we believe that children are important, but I hear some of you are saying this in your mind, but I hear you saying women aren't important. See, the problem right now with, it, with our culture wars is the divisive narrative that you have to choose. It's either the children or the women. And yes, the front row said it's so demonic, and I believe that. As Scott Sauls says this, the question that we're forced with is who should we care for more? That's what the culture wants us to decide on. Do we side on the child or do we side on the mother? And the church has been saying this for 2,000 years. Both. Both. If in any account, and this may be anecdotes that you've heard, where the church has shamed someone who's gotten pregnant outside of, of marriage, right, and has had an abortion, we will condemn that. We are not called to shame anyone. We are called to welcome people. And there's nuance to that. And I'm not going to get totally into that today, but it's important to note that we are called to be a place of welcome. Let me just say this really quick. And I want you to understand where many women are finding themselves in over 63% of elective abortions are the result of pressure and coercion. In addition to that, 98% of abortions are elective. In other words, they're not due to um, extraordinary circumstances of the, the life of the mother in jeopardy. We have a problem. Would you agree with that? But here's the thing. Many young women who've had an abortion 
they live alone. 60% live alone, live in poverty. There's so many women out there that, that live in this constant state of fear and anxiety, and they have no support from a husband or a boyfriend or a father or a mother. And they're confused. They don't even know what to do. Come on, somebody. Let's put ourselves in their situation, right? So when it comes to women or children, we say, bring the women, bring the children. And I need to say this. I didn't say this for service, but the early Christians saw abortion as dehumanizing for women because this is the reason because they saw it as a de desecration of their body. They say this over and over and over again. So Scott Saul says this, and you hear this, and I have to address this, guys, because you hear it all the time. I hear it all the time. I went on Twitter yesterday, and I felt sick to my stomach. I felt unclean, right? I, the, Twitter is so dysfunctional, and people are losing their minds. Twitter is full of people that are losing their minds or psychos. I'm trying to figure out which one it is, okay? But I went on Twitter and I was just listening to some of the arguments. They're utilitarian. There's, they rarely address the moral argument, but the argument usually goes like this. You Christians, you're pro-life in the womb, but outside the womb, you don't care about, you don't care about anything, right? Which is the greatest lie that has been perpetuated over the last 50 years. Let me say this. I'm not justifying any church member or any Christian that does something stupid, right? Or sinful by condemning or whatever it might be that has brought harm to certain people facing a very difficult decision when it comes to abortion. We're not justifying any shaming or anything like that. But in the words of Scott Sauls is it is an indisputable fact that the pro-life people, especially Christian ones care more for their poor, distraught, and or at-risk neighbors than the rest of the world combined. Did you hear me? The church, I'm so proud of the church because we hear it. I've been hearing it lately. The church sucks. Church is dysfunctional, especially those white evangelical men or those Catholics or whatever. You just kind of go on and on and on. And there's some bad white evangelical men. Can I get an amen? I'm not one of them, okay? But we will, yes, address bad white evangelical men, of course. But let me say this. It's just negative news after negative news after negative news about the church. Some of it is true. Most of it is exaggerated and it's a caricature. In fact, a secular journalist doesn't believe in Jesus, doesn't even believe in God. Nicholas Kristof, writing for the New York Times, said this in 2011. He said this, or he states, evangelicals and Catholic believers are leading the world in mercy and justice efforts on virtually every front. But we just don't hear about that. This is part of my prophetic challenge now to our church. We need to start practicing Matthew chapter 5, 13 through 16. Jesus said, you are light of the world. You are salt of the earth. Let your good works be known before men. What is Jesus telling his disciples? Guys, you cannot remain passive. 
He's telling his disciples, you cannot remain in a state of invisibility. God has called us to be visible with his love. God has called us to be loud with his grace and with his wisdom. God has called us to be extravagant with his blessing. We are blessed so we can be a blessing. And God is his, his intention, his desire, his dream is to work through us to reverse and to lift off the curse, to lift off chronic depression, to lift off the sin that is besetting so many, uh, so many people, like the anxiety and the depression that so many people are experiencing. God has called us to be a blessing in this world. So now I get to my prophetic challenge to all of us. You guys still with me? Yes. I'm going to begin with Mother Teresa. Mother Teresa said this at the National Prayer Breakfast to the sitting President of the United States. How many of you love Mother Teresa? The National Prayer Breakfast. And this is a contentious issue. She looks at the sitting President and says this, please stop aborting your babies and please give them to me. My prophetic challenge to this church and the churches in the United States of, America, of America is the same thing. Please stop aborting your babies and give your babies to us. But it's not just your babies. We want those who are in the challenging circumstance of figuring out what to do in their situation. Some have been raped. Some are products of incest, their pregnancy. There's a wide range of very difficult situations. The church is called not to shame or condemn. The church is called to come alongside, practice some culture care, practice some culture care and come alongside mothers and the preborn and the born children and do the hard work of denying ourselves and giving our time, our energy, our resources, our very lives. Because if you want a revival, Jesus said it. You got to deny yourself and pick up your cross. You can't live for yourself anymore. You have to live for the kingdom of God. And if we're serious about a move of God in our city, we have to be serious about denying ourselves and doing the hard work of culture care. So everyone right now who calls themselves pro-life, in this moment, we're living in a post-Roe v. Wade world. We have to ask ourselves this question now. What's my part to play? Please do not look at me and say, okay, Chris, go get him. Get out your bag of popcorn. Just watch the staff and the pastors do it. No, guys. You're on team Jesus and we're called to do this together. Guys, I have seven children. I don't got much left. Okay. I've done my part. Okay. Now it's your turn. I'm kidding. No, I'm not. 
What can, what can we do? What's, how can we rescue lives? Man, I remember almost, what, 17 years ago, 17 and a half years ago, Shane and Kirsten, who pioneered adoption in our church, found out about their beautiful boy, Ethan, who I just, oh my God, I love so much. And they go all the way to Twin Falls, and I just love their, their bio parents chose life for Ethan. Ethan, who loves my sons of thunder. He's just the best boy, right? And Shane and Kirsten opened up their hearts to Ethan. And then Eden came along. What a year, a year and a half later. And it was her birthday yesterday. Can we give it up for Eden? It was her birthday. She's 16 years old. She might be the president of the United States. The smartest person in the room. Always, right? I just love this girl. It was her parents who chose life. It was Shane and Kirsten who pioneered adoption. Help me open my heart to adoption. You know our, our story. My wife and I, we tried for five, six years to get pregnant. And then it was a um, crazy scenario. We felt like God was telling us to adopt. And so we, we went to an agency and we got a social worker and we did all our paperwork. And it was about a two-year process. And we went to actually, in fact, we went, all, went to all the urologists and the doctors. And they said, Chris, there's nothing wrong with you. You are really handsome and you are a man-man. So I don't know what's, it's weird because you're the manliest man I've ever seen. Okay, I'm kidding. You know, you didn't say that. I wish he said it. All right. But our doctors told us there was nothing wrong with us. And so we felt like the Holy Spirit was saying to us, okay, it's time to adopt. And through Shane and Kirsten and their example, they opened my heart, softened my heart. And it was a good Friday, 2011. It was a very good Friday. My wife and I, we were at Jimmy John's. What's the slogan of Jimmy John's? Freaky fast. <laughs> Freaky fast. And I was writing a philosophical treatise. It was my senior seminar. I was debunking evolutionary psychology. I can't even remember what it was. So I was in the zone. And then my wife gets a call from a social worker saying, hey, there's twin boys. We always wanted twin boys, just one set. That's all we wanted, but God gave us more, right? <laughs> And uh, we're sitting there and we're like, oh my gosh, yes, um, please show our profile to this, this uh, birth mom. And within five, about five hours later, it was an amazing story. We called all of our friends and, and pastors and we were praying. And I remember the day when we found out that we, um, that we were parents, that we had adopted twin boys, my Wesley and my Quincy. And I just want to thank Deanne, a birth mom who didn't have a whole lot of support, who carried her twin boys full term, who sacrificed everything. To me, this is the gospel. Sacrificed her body, could have done a lot of different things and chose life over my Wesley, my Quincy, my little homeboys. And then a year later, my daughter, Whitney, same birth parents, my beautiful, beautiful daughter. Sorry, I'm not a crier. You're a crier. <laughs> I'm not crying. Chose life. Today, I'm not trying to pick a fight. I'm not trying to shame anybody, but I, I'm, I'm, I'm asking the church to accept this prophetic challenge of coming alongside of those and helping those who are in difficult situation to choose life. We believe all life matters. 
So when we come to this crisis, what do we do? Because we have a crisis brewing. What do, what do we do with all those who are debating what to do with abortion? Well, I think there's some, some thoughts. Let me throw it out to you. We can support pregnancy centers. We can financially support. We can get more information. What I love is that we have more pregnancy centers than abortion clinics out there. They can do real, real world, real world work in helping pregnant mothers. You can adopt. I just want to open up. This is maybe not for everybody, but I'm just going to be really honest. You can adopt. I was in my early mid thirties and I adoption wasn't even on my radar and the Holy Spirit got me. It's actually my wife, the Holy Spirit used to get me, but it was amazing how God changed my heart in an instant. And we adopted the most beautiful children. You can, you can partner with Kate and my cousin. She adopted five of her kids and she's over foster and heart. You could support that. There's other age, be, wonderful, beautiful agencies in the city that you can support. You can foster a child. Also, you can get involved in public policy. I think we need more men and women who are not trying to um, usher in a theocracy, but are simply because we live in a constitutional Republic simply want by the grace of God to provide human flourishing for all people. And by grace and love and wisdom, they would write public policy. That would be the best for all people. We need more of that. And maybe some of you are here today. You have an itch to get involved in politics. I don't know what it is, but we are called, we are called we are called, and this is my challenge, to take what we have done over the last 50 years in helping pregnant mothers debating about what they should do with their preborn child. We're now called to take it to another level. In the words of one pro-life scholar and activist, she writes this, we can't assume that a woman or a girl who is scared and uncertain will not feel too scared to reach out for help. She needs to know ahead of time that such help and love is there for her. So while many churches offer housing and other means of support for moms in crisis, making visible bridges to that help is absolutely crucial. We need to be able to imagine together in prayer, uh, together before a crisis occurs, what it will look like to choose life together. We need the Holy Spirit. We need his wisdom to show us how can we create bridges to those who are on the other side of the culture war, who are confused and overwhelmed in life. We are summoned by heaven to serve and to bless them. Come on, somebody. We're called to bless the powerless. We're called to bless our enemies. We're called to bless those who blankety blank us. And I know I'm going to get a lot of blankety blanks, but I'm going to bless all the blankety blankers. Here's the thing. Some of you, you need to stop wasting your time on Facebook and Instagram, fighting with someone who lives 2000 miles away from you, who doesn't care one thing about you and will never change his mind because you have an airtight argument. What you need to do is channel that energy in prayer and ask the Holy Spirit what you can do in your local situation to come alongside mothers and babies and bring life to them. This is what we're called to do. I just want to end with this example. I love this. This is um, love in action. You can find this in Nancy Percy's um, 
book. She talks about a pastor who uh, discovered a creative way to help save abandoned babies in a ragged working class neighborhood in a different country. One house had a small drop box built into the wall. A hand scrawled sign outside the drop box says, if you can't take care of your disabled babies, don't throw them away or leave them on the street. Bring them here. The box is lined with a soft pink and blue blanket and it has a bell that rings when the little door is open. The drop box is in the home of Presbyterian pastor. And since 2009, this pastor has saved the lives of more than 600 children. He and his wife adopted 10, the maximum number allowed in South Korea, then arranged for the adoption of others. Inscribed along the top of the drop box is Psalm 2710. For my father and my mother have forsaken me, but the Lord will take me in. First service, we had someone come up to my father and said that she had aborted two babies, came to Jesus, got counseling, and now she's offering counseling for those who have aborted their babies. What an amazing testimony. We have prison ministries, amazing. We have men's ministries, amazing. We have women's ministry, amazing. We need to have a ministry that focuses on those who need counseling for those who have aborted their child. Again, there's so many different ways we can get involved. You and I are not called to be passive. I'm challenging you. I'll come after you. No, I won't. The Holy Spirit will in love and wisdom. He's pushing us, guys. He push, he's pushing us out of our easygoing complacency. He's pushing us. I'm almost done here. No, I'm not. He's pushing us out of our safety. He's pushing us into the culture. He's pushing us. It's Mark chapter four and five. Jesus went to the other side. He didn't stay away from the Decapolis. He went to the other side and he healed the sick and he healed the demon possessed man filled with the legion. God is calling us and summoning the church to do the same thing, to do the work of culture care and coming alongside of those so we can make, in the words of Scott Sauls, not only is our goal to make abortion illegal. That's beside the point. Our goal is to infect the world so much with love that we make abortion unthinkable. You might not like that. You're like, maybe again, some of you are like, well, I'm, I'm a Christian and I'm pro-choice. Good and godly people can disagree. And I love you. If you have questions, you can talk to me a year from now because my babies are, you know, or sooner, whatever. But I want to challenge the church to, to walk in love, to walk in wisdom. We will not demonize each other or the other side. We will not shame or treat people with contempt. We believe all life is sacred. We believe that God is good. We believe this is a year of Jubilee. And we believe that, and I believe this in part, the move of God, we sung it today, the blessing is on our children. I believe that we're going to see an incredible move of God with our children. And I think a lot of it is as we do the hard work of serving those who are underserved, those who are powerless, those who are vulnerable, we will see the blessing of God on our churches, in our cities, on our nation, and the nations of the world.
Bow your heads, close your eyes. Father, I thank you for your grace. I thank you that we would be a people committed to do the work of culture care. Holy Spirit, pray you would come and give us insight and wisdom. I think there's some, there's some people in here today, you have a political bent. We've, we're, we're called as Christians to be in politics, not just political. I think there's a big difference. And there's some of you that God is calling you, I just feel it, I sense it, to, uh, it could be working on public policy, could be, I don't know, running for office, could be federal, could be state, could be local, could be the education board, it could be city council, I don't know what it is, but God is stirring in your heart to do something. You have a gift, you have a calling. Whoever that might be here today, I just thank you that you would empower them with your grace and your wisdom and your love and your blessing. And you would give them profound insight on how to love our city and this world filled with so much confusion and rancor. And I bless all your sons and daughters in this room today. We accept, if you accept this challenge to get in the game, to listen to the Holy Spirit, Right? There's a lot of different ways we can do this. Take your hand, put it on your heart right now. Lord, as we accept this challenge, we thank you for your power. We thank you for your grace. We thank you for your leading. The steps of a good man, good woman are ordered by the Lord. Lead us and show us how to build bridges. Everyone say build bridges. We want to build bridges. We want to love our enemies. We want to love the vulnerable. We want to be known as a people infecting the world with your love. So I thank you, Father. We're, a shift is taking place. You're doing something in this nation, but you're doing something in this church. I thank you. You're lighting a passion in the hearts of your sons and daughters. I declare we will never be the same again as a community in Jesus' name. I thank you for vision and fresh purpose. I thank you, Father, for just creativity. And God, you're going to do something so amazing. Three, four, five years down the road, we're going to look back at this moment and we're going to say, God, you are absolutely awesome and amazing. So we say yes to you, Holy Spirit, to what you want to do in our lives. Keep your eyes closed, your heads bowed. If there's anyone in this room, you say, Chris, I've had an abortion. What do you say right now? I just want to tell you we love you. I want to tell you that you're welcomed in this place. I want to tell you that if you could see the face of Jesus, it would melt your heart. He loves you with an everlasting love. That with Jesus, there's blessing and there's grace and there's hope and there's renewal and there's forgiveness and there's life and life more abundantly. You can have that. You don't have that with the Republican Party. You don't get that with the Democratic Party. You don't get that with capitalism. You don't get that with Marxism. You don't get it with any political theory. You only get that with Jesus. Jesus and Jesus alone can bring blessing, can bring healing to your heart and your mind. So I thank you, Father, for anyone in this room that may be struggling with shame or guilt from past decisions. Just lift that off. Everyone say lift. We just lift that off in Jesus' name. Holy Spirit, come and fill every heart with your boundless, unlimited love. In the name of Jesus, we pray. And everyone said, Amen. Can you give God a hand today? Thank you for joining us today. If you'd like to give towards this ministry, learn more about our church and events, 
or are in need of prayer, please visit capitalchurch.co.